Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Rio, and I'm grateful for the chance to sit down with you. I've got my buddy is here with me, Chris Bloxham. Uh, Chris, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, man. How are you? Good, good. I'm excited to have this conversation. You and I have been talking in the in the pawn shop the last few days about um, the Lord's Supper. And the reason we've been having this conversation, pawn shops are cool places. If anybody's in southern Utah, come stop at Family Pawn in Hurricane, Utah. Uh, I manage the store there. Chris is here almost every day. Um, and we're always just talking Mormonism in our downtime. It's the thing that you and I find interesting. And recently, our shop acquired these old uh, vintage, uh, heavily silver-plated uh, sacrament trays. And you and I were having a conversation about, because these were the trays that were used originally when the church moved away from a, uh, a one-cup or goblet system to moving to individual cups. And you were sharing like, hey, Bill, this is a really fascinating story. And as you and I were going back and forth, um, I just thought it would make a great episode. So I'm grateful that you're going to sit down with us today, give us a little bit of your time, Chris, and have this fun conversation for for listeners. Um, I, you've been on the podcast several times. I'm happy to give you a second to introduce yourself if you'd like, um, and then we can jump into it. Nah, nah, man, that's good. You know, you know, you know who I am. Yeah, I know. And, and the listeners know, if, <laughs> you know, if you want to get a feel for Chris, I think a great episode to go back to is the episode that uh, you and I did. And, and your brother, uh, Clay, may have been on that and on this one as well. But we talked about the first vision um, and it was just a, a great episode. Um, and I think people get a real feel for your humor, and your personality in that one. Um, I want to start off. Let's go way back. Let's go back to Jesus. Uh, whether he's mythical Jesus or historical Jesus, it doesn't matter to me. But uh, let's jump into Matthew 26, 27. Uh, I don't necessarily want to read the scripture, but just kind of set up the story. Um, we we originally get Jesus Christ initiating um, the sacrament as he's sitting around with his apostles just before Judas is about to betray him. And uh, Jesus implements a, a one-cup system. And, and then and then maybe talk for a second about that, and then talk for a second maybe about how Joseph Smith comes in and also initiates the sacrament, initiates a one-cup system, and perhaps like how we as Mormons are so heavily invested in tradition um, to the point where it causes some rigidity and doesn't allow us maybe the space to easily adapt and move. Maybe your thoughts on kind of all of that. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I think that we in the church a lot of times think things have always been a certain way. And our leaders kind of talk about it in that frame of mind that um, everything has always been this way. It's been this way since Adam and Eve. Uh, and um, that's what makes the gospel so unique is that God has given us these doctrines and, and they've been pretty consistent throughout time. Yeah, and, and so you've got Jesus giving us the sacrament, and, and they're all drinking from one cup. And again, I, we're going to get into this as we hash through all this information, but all these guys have got beards. I mean, shaving just isn't easy. Nobody's got uh, a nice five-blade razor to throw out on their face every day. And so we're, beards become kind of the norm throughout early human history leading up to the modern era. And, and then you've got Joseph Smith, again, reiterating the sacrament with a goblet or one-cup system. And really it's disgusting everybody drinking from one cup but it's the way we do things and so we press through and we do it and it's not until um kind of you know decades later we get into kind of the uh three quarters of the way into the 1800s when people start to become aware of beyond just the disgustingness of 
particles and smells in this common shared cup, but there becomes to be, there now is more awareness about germs and how people get sick. Uh, and so we end up in the like 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, uh, there begins to be this conversation of how unhealthy drinking water, contaminated drinking water can, uh, can affect people. Um, and Christianity seems to be picking up on this generally, and denominations are beginning to have these conversations. And Utah is somewhat isolated uh, away from the rest of the country. And so they're, because of that uh, isolation and insulation, they can kind of distance themselves from having the conversation until a little bit later on. Um, but maybe talk for a moment uh, about, you know, what kinds of uh, illnesses are going around, what kind of conversations maybe are happening or any other thoughts you've got kind of in this early spot before the church starts to take this conversation seriously. One of the very first uh, times that the church really takes a hard look at how the sacraments been administered is in the 1890s when it used to be the custom of all the members in the ward to kneel at the same time that the high priest was blessing the sacrament. And there was some uh, this issue was brought up because it was so noisy and was a disturbance to the sacredness of the ritual that uh, the, the leaders decided to let's do away with that and let's not have everybody get on the ground and kneel. But this topic of the sacrament was the topic for the first, um, oh, for about 15 years in the church. You know, like today, I, we might say that the topic in the halls of, the, of a typical ward building is LGBT issues or I don't know, blacks in the priesthood, whatever the whatever it is, the social issue of the time. This was that. Um, this is what people were talking about in the halls, the changes that were happening to the sacrament. Yeah, and and you know, we've had this thing happen in Mormonism. We talked about it kind of briefly a moment ago, but it applies to every facet. When we talk about the temple, these were the ordinances, this was the mode, this is the exact way, this is the one-piece garment that we have to stick with. These are the very handshakes, tokens, signs, symbols we have to give. This is the exact order we have to do things in. Um, Mormonism is very dependent on the membership perceiving um, consistency and perceiving its doctrines as not changing. Like if God's the communicator and prophets are the listeners and they are trustable, then whatever information comes forth from prophets being said to have come from God needs to be consistent and stay the same. And yet, as we go through all this information, we're going to find that anything but happens. Um, maybe we can go to, I've got this little story here from the Murray First Ward. This is, we'll do a little bit of a time jump. We'll, we'll speak about this for a moment, um, but then we'll move, move backwards and we'll talk for a second about Brigham Young's disdain for doctors uh, and some of the other things that are going into play. But this Murray First Ward in 1960, 1916, sorry, the Murray First Ward had the remains in a sacrament cup tested by the Salt Lake County Physician's Office in March 1916. And the physician found not less than six contagious diseases. Dude, you're big on germs, Chris. What do you think about drinking out of a cup that had six contagious diseases in it? Oh, I, uh, <clears throat> I think I would have been one of those Mormons that would have been sent to, you know, Bunkerville or someplace because I, I don't think I would have been taking the sacrament <laughs> unless <Are> you, you were... <laughs> There's are you saying something you about the Mormons time. that are in Bunkerville? <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other episode. <laughs> I'm just saying that members of the church, if they weren't in favor with Brigham Young, got sent to some pretty bad places. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Drinking out of the one cup, six contagious diseases. You know, that's, that's pretty disgusting. 
Yeah, yeah. I think you would have had people pushing to be the first ones in when the church opened in the morning and not be number 250 in the back, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so if we go back maybe now, just kind of talking about the idea that, you know, the the sacrament water or, you know, even the wine for that matter, I know there's some argument about how wine can kill germs, but obviously there, this water is contaminated. Obviously people are going to get sick and have gotten sick and surely some people have died from the illnesses that they got from partaking of a one cup sacrament uh, system. But, you know, if we go back in time, uh, Brigham Young, maybe kind of setting up the church's reluctance to change here. First is the tradition, the tradition that um, Jesus implements a sacrament. Joseph Smith implements a one cup sacrament. I've got a quote here from Brigham Young. Um, says, Utahns may have improperly protected themselves from sanitation problems since their arrival in the 1840s. For in the spirit of self-sufficiency, church leaders tended to instruct the saints to take care of their own health needs. Brigham Young uh, even publicized his disdain for doctors. Doctors in their medicines I regard as a deadly bane to any community. I am not partial to doctors. Perhaps this position resulted in poor sanitation in Utah, particularly in Salt Lake County, from its founding until the late 1880s. Uh, Brigham Young was uh, resistant to a lot of things, Uh, doctors being one of them. And I wonder if there's any connection here to uh, John C. Bennett and him coming into town and and kind of, uh, in a sense, fooling some of the upper leaders and gaining trust and then abusing that trust. Um, and then just maybe just the Brigham Young just thinking like, hey, the, I've seen doctors kill people left and right, which would have been the norm for society then. And to just trust your own gut and to kind of take care of things yourself. Because if you call on a doctor in the 1800s, there was actually very little chance that things were going to get better for you. The, the modes of solving serious problems weren't really that great. Um, your thoughts on Brigham Young maybe and any, any ideas you have about his resistance to, to change and wanting to keep things kind of status quo? I'd never thought about the John C. Bennett link. Um, you might be right on that. He, uh, he certainly didn't like John C. Bennett. Um, but I, I don't think it was that atypical in rural America in the 19th century to, um, you know, to not really trust doctors that much. Like you said, you call in a doctor and, you know, there's a good chance you're going to die anyway. So I think that people in rural America were relying on themselves, um, on home remedies, on cures that have been passed down through their families. So uh, I think that probably found its way into the church culture in, uh, you know, the late 19th century. Yeah. And you even got, um, you know, Joseph Smith's brother, Alvin, uh, becoming ill. We don't know exactly what happened, but some suggestions are maybe his appendix burst. And the doctor comes in and, you know, takes this uh, ball, uh, this medicine of calomel and wraps it up in a ball of mercury. And they just yeah. stuff it down Alvin's gullet and make him swallow this thing. And the, the belief in the day was that this ball got stuck somewhere in his uh, gastrointestinal tract and, and uh, ended up just plugging him up. And then he just died like two days later. And, uh, you know, I, I just think as you're, as you're saying here, as I'm pointing out, just the trust of doctors would have been minimal. Um, it may have been good to go to them for a thing or two that we knew that they were good at. But for the most part, calling a doctor felt like, um, you know, about a 50-50 chance of making things worse or better. Yeah. No. So um, your thoughts here, what, what kind of interesting information are you got in front of you that as we're having this conversation starts to nudge or press upon the church to start making these kinds of changes? Well, I guess I just have some thoughts on it in that 
the reason that we started to change in Utah was because it started to become very popular in newspapers to talk about sanitation in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s. Uh, there were some articles written that estimated that over 1 million deaths a year were caused by the common drinking cup at the public fountains. And we should talk about this. Let me stop you for just a second. The public drinking cup, like I go to a water fountain, I push a button, water comes out in this stream and I take a drink and I let go of the button and the water stops coming out and it goes down the drain, whatever was left. Um, tell us about the public drinking cup. Cause wow. this, I didn't know, I didn't know we did this. And I, I've got pictures pulled up on my computer. This is insane what, what this was. Um, have you seen some of these photos? I, I have. There's, there should be a photo of the public uh, fountain on Temple Square. The cups all hanging from a chain. The bigger cities would have multiple cups hanging from chains so that people didn't have to wait very long in line. I, I think it's important to remember that science usually leads the way in these things. And that... Uh, there was a doctor in, I believe, Chicago, Dr. Alvin Davison, who was a professor of biology. Um, oh, it was in Ohio. That's where he was teaching. And um, he noted that one student at Ohio State University infected the entire student body with the measles. So there were doctors that were speaking out and trying to get cities to ban using common cups at these fountains because it was a public health issue. Utah didn't ban the cup, the public cup, until 1912, uh, way behind the eastern cities that were making the changes. And, you know, the typical argument is, well, we're not like those cities back east. You know, this is Utah. This is us. We don't, we don't make changes because of popularity and social pressure. Yeah. And these, this one cup fountain, I'm just looking at one of these pictures. You got seven guys standing around a... Uh, a little, it's almost like a bird bath. <laughs> and if we're honest, the birds probably were hitting that thing, you know, before the guys got there for their lunch break or whatever. You're a but, bird. Why would you want to hang out at the fountain? You know? Right, right. And so there's this bird bath full of water with a little thing coming out of it. And there's four, like you say, four or five chains hooked to cups. And these men with all their fancy hats on, they're dipping their cups in this water, the still stagnant water. And then drinking it and then putting the cup back so the next guy can use it. Um, it you know, it, it's, a, it's a miracle that we didn't all just die in a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I know some people did, but it's, it's insane with the modes that we use that uh, more people didn't get sick and die. And we didn't catch on to this quicker and get rid of this. But you're right. The conversation's happening for the most of the world in the 1870s, 1880s, and surely by the 1890s. And then the church is finally tackling, not the church, but the state of Utah is finally tackling this one cup system in well, well, 1912. Bill, let me, when you said the, the, the church or that you said the state of Utah and not the church, I mean, they're really one and the same. Yeah, yeah they're, they're um, interconnected. You and I live here, man. You know, you know how, much, uh, how much the church and politics are intertwined. I wanted to point out from something, uh, something that we talked about a few minutes ago when the state of Utah passed the law in 1912 banning those common cups, there was a carve out like there generally is for the church um, because the new law didn't prohibit the cups use in congregations of worship. I just think it's interesting that it's been going on since the beginning uh, that uh, when laws are passed in Utah, the church is very aware of how those laws could affect any of their rituals, any of their, any of their mechanics of their system. And, uh, use their influence to get those exemptions uh, written into law. Right, right. If 
we collectively decide that drinking out of a single cup is not healthy, that it leads to disease, illness, and, and to some extent, death. And uh, the public health system of that area decides that this is no longer okay um, and now creates legislation, uh, creates laws that make this one cup system forbidden so as to keep, uh, as in the interest of public health, and then to have an exclusion that says, but in this religious system, in churches where they're drinking from one cup, that danger is not significant enough for us to intervene. That does seem like an interesting juxtaposition of, of why would we allow it for this when it's just as dangerous? It's not like those guys' germs in that room are any less. And, and at some point here, I'd love to have a conversation later down the road of, of priesthood power and how ineffective it really is that we do need to make such changes. But in reality, religion shouldn't be exempt from this. If, if we're in the interest of public health, um, we also need to say like this is dangerous inside the system too, and hence it should have changed there as well, correct? Yeah. Um, and I was just thinking as you were talking, the most notable religious exception to making the change back then was the Catholic Church who decided to continue on with a single chalice and not, uh, and not follow science. Um, uh, it's fascinating that a church with billions of people worldwide still uses a single cup. Yeah. And if they would have moved to a multi-cup uh, early on, they'd have a few more Catholics around. Most of those guys are leaving now, right? So a few more of those guys might be there. Um, it is too, it's interesting too, just the tradition, right? So every Protestant church that comes out of Catholicism essentially said like, this isn't working, we're going to make a change. And so their history is built on the acceptance that changes do happen and that shifts need to occur. And that in order to protect this thing called Christianity, we need to break away from this particular system. Um, Mormonism kind of does, kind of is Catholicism fast forwarded in terms of tradition. It claims to be a restored church. It's a restoration. And so it's Jesus directly setting out and organizing the church without it having broken away from anything. And I think, I think there's a reason why it's the Catholic church and the LDS church and a few other churches that value tradition over uh, public health um, that indicate why these systems in particular are clinging to this one cup system while other systems seem open to change. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um. You mentioned newspapers and how this was the conversation of the day. Uh, Salt Lake City had a newspaper that was based almost entirely on public health called the Salt Lake uh, Sanitarium. Um, and it, I think, began in 1877 or it ended in 1877, but somewhere in the mid-1870s. This uh, newspaper comes about. Started by Gentiles, I'd assume. Uh, no, it was actually started by members of the church uh, who were f- seeing um, the newspapers that you were pointing to talking about the health uh, benefits of the day of, of modern science and the awareness of kind of the, the modern studies that were going on and the modern uh, perspective on what was a better way to, to live in ways that we stayed away from germs and were healthier in our eating and drinking. And they saw uh, the church and its community as being so far behind that they started this newspaper to try to bring fellow members up to date. But the newspaper only lasted three years and it, it just didn't connect with people. And I think, again, this speaks to often uh, our reluctance to jump into uh, modern views of things and to adopt and adapt to some of that that's going on. Um, anything else you think kind of in this, this point before we get into 
the actual dialogue between members and leaders. Uh, any other thoughts you've got on kind of just setting the context up of what's going on uh, during this day before we get into that? Well, I think we should paint a picture of what it looked like to be a member of the church in the 1880s sitting in sacrament meeting. There's several hundred people generally. You have children, you have uh, that they referred to back then with dewy lips that people would, uh, members of the board would say, we don't like it when children with dewy lips take a drink off the sacrament cup. Sounds gross. Dewy lips. (laughs) The word of wisdom wasn't enforced. So as the sacrament cup came to you, came to your family, it would taste like, uh, people reported it tasting like liquor, tobacco, peppermint, um, smoke. Uh, I read one place fish. Like if somebody ate fish for breakfast, um, there were times where the, the sacrament water had a fish odor, fish smell to it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting to even go back a few more decades because we have a quote from Brigham Young, and I don't have it in front of me, but apparently people weren't reciting the prayers the way we do today. They had come from other religions, and there was kind of a personalized way that people did the sacrament. Um, and it's crazy because the revelation, you know, Joseph Smith laid the revelation out in section 20 a long time ago. Um, but there's a quote from him where he is saying he wants people to go back and read the, you know, read the proper prayers, do the sacrament the proper way. Also back in the early days of the church, you would eat all the bread and you would drink all the wine. It was it's, uh, essentially like uh, the Lord's Supper, like, you, you know, you would eat till you had your fill, which... I didn't even know until I attended a friend of mine's fundamentalist breakoff church, and they do it the way that the early Mormons did, with everybody kneeling, everybody drinking out of one cup, and everyone eating all the bread. And they also use the very best bread. I, it's kind of interesting. In our church, we use the cheapest bread, the two-for-a-dollar bread. So I just want for a moment, Chris, let's talk about like you guys and your church attendance. You guys, you guys always sit at the back of the room, right? You guys always go into the overflow area, the basketball court, and you guys pull up a chair there and you and your family, that's where, when you guys go to church, that's where you guys sit, right? Yeah. We like to sit in the back. We're kind of back row. What's, what's Uh, your reason for that? What's your, what's the mentality of, uh, (laughs) of choosing the hard metal seat while all these other people sit in those soft uh, pews up at the front. Cause I never did that. I, I, I hated going to state conference and my, my wife having us run a little late, right? I always wanted to be an hour early so I could get a soft seat and right. I'm always going to be the first one there and Sitting on the front row. Hell yeah. Oh yeah. I want to be seen. Yeah. How am I going to get a high call on your face? If I'm not at the front of the room looking up at these guys. All done up against oh, the yeah. neck all tight. Oh yeah. White shirt and everything. <laughs> And uh, you go to the back and, um, and sit in these hard chairs. And I, you, know, you and I get along well, and we see the world very similar. And yet, 10 years ago, you and I wouldn't have liked each other. Because <laughs> um, I would have seen you as a, as, a, as a boundary pusher, and me as the guy who's absolutely fitting in at all costs. And tell me about sitting in the back for a moment, because then I want to ask yeah. you something. Yeah, we, uh, our family kind of started doing that, I don't know, when our kids were little. But we, by doing it, we notice that, you know, the people that sit in the back are oftentimes the less active families, the uh, single people that have slid in, you know, because they're running late and kind of liked the vibe in the back. You know, it was a little bit of a, I don't know, we just, uh, we enjoyed the people in the back uh, that were, had some obvious, you know, they either were late for church or they didn't quite want to walk in front of everyone else and be embarrassed. They liked that. 
So now let's, let's put you in a time machine. Let's take you back to the 1800s. You and your family go to church in uh, 1870. Um, sitting in the back is going to be a problem because the people at the front are going to start on that cup, Chris. Did you, do you suddenly become a front row, uh, a front row <laughs> sitter or are you, just, are you just not taking the sacrament? Oh, man, that's a tough call. Because I know you're not drinking out of that cup. There's no um, way. <laughs> I'm looking at that cup with all that food floating in it. And, and uh, yeah, I probably be one of those guys that pass it on and then everybody <laughs> else whispers what's going on. He must, uh, you know. Yeah. He must be looking at adult nudie magazines or something. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever the porn of 1870 was, I don't know. Um, that probably, that brings up an interesting point too, which is the workarounds that people had for when the sacrament got passed. Talk for a moment about how people would try to cheat the system and drink out of the clean area of the cup, but how that would backfire. <laughs> There's a quote from Sam P. County uh, by James Jacobs, who said, it was interesting to watch people as the water goblets were passed to them. Some would carefully turn the goblet so they could drink right over the handle. Others placed their hands on each side of the goblet and tipped it up, but did not actually touch their lips to it. Still others sipped obediently, then wiped their lips vigorously with handkerchiefs to remove any trace that might have been picked up from the previous drinkers. Um, one thing that's interesting is that so many people were turning the cup to drink over the handle that that quickly became the most used spot on the cup. I'm sure we would have had some tricks, a screen or something, or I don't know, pour it through a handkerchief and drop it into your mouth. I don't know what I would have done. It would have been hell, man. <laughs> and the first time, I can just picture you, the first time that you get like a fish odor in your sacrament water, yeah. I could just see you going like standing up going like, what the hell, bro? It's like, what the hell? Which one of you fuckers just ate? Which one of you <laughs> just had a, had a slice of salmon for, for, you know, for breakfast? Which one of you guys just had tuna and crackers? I mean, you could just see uh, the, the, Anger and frustration that you or I, I mean, would have had now, I wouldn't have had it 10 years ago. I would have been like, well, the obedient do drink from the cup, so let's be obedient. But today, I would have been like, what the hell, man? Which one of you guys decide to eat a mackerel <laughs> for breakfast? <laughs> yeah, so I, I just, these workarounds didn't work. Everybody had a mode of trying to get the cleanest water out of the cup. And the reality is, by the time it got past the 10th guy, everything on that cup had been touched already. Every trick had been tried. Um, and then these beards, the crumbs that would have come off these beards, you know, again, we take the bread first and the water second. I know why we do that. We all want to take a drink after we've just chewed some dry food. But the reality is we probably should have been drinking water first and then partaking of the bread. Um, and again, whatever people had for breakfast, pieces of food still stuck in their teeth. Brushing teeth was not an everyday common occurrence. Um, uh, just the disgustingness. I wouldn't even drink after my kids as, as a, you know, as a functioning human being in, in the modern era, I, I wouldn't drink after my wife or kids. I tried to stay away from foods and drinks that my kids were, had had. And my wife is like, come on, man, it's just your own kids. And I'm like, no way, man, that's disgusting. So I just, I don't know. This is such a strange thing to consider the, the nastiness of this process. You can still find these cups on the secondary market that are collectible now. Very, very collectible. And the ones that I've seen, the two that I've seen have had bite marks around the rim. Um, so it wasn't just take a drink from these, you know, these children. Sometimes they would sit and just chew on it, obviously, since uh, these, these two cups had a lot of teeth marks around them. Ooh. Or maybe the adults were chewing on them. I don't know. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> That's so gross. Um, I read somewhere that, you know, the kids, 
Um, there was always this debate about whether the kids should take the sacrament and people, again, you talk about the dewy lips. They even created like a mock sacrament cup. I read some story where some of the words were creating mock cups to pass around for the children so that they could think they were being part of this ordinance. And in reality, they never were able to or allowed to drink from the cup that actually had the blessed sacrament water in it. I thought that was interesting um, as well. Um, the Catholic Church, I want to read a quote here from him because I think this deeply applies to how the LDS church perceived itself at this time. And it'll set up our conversation as we go forward now, starting to talk about how this discussion um, begins to take hold and the church begins to, uh, as it always does, accommodate progressive ideas that uh, hold truth to them. And so in Catholicism at this time, in the, in the late 1800s, here was a quote that came out of the Catholic church uh, in regards to the common cup. Um, it said that they were reluctant to gravitate and towards aggressive, or I'm sorry, progressive ideas and foregoing the common cup would reflect a quote, secularization of the Christian creed because they would be adjusting their doctrine to accommodate modern trends. Instead, they wish to remain a confessional ritual oriented denomination, refusing progressive ideas that they felt threatened their religious observance. Mormonism always sees change as disruptive. It always sees change as being potentially more bad than good. And so lots of conversation, surveys, pilot programs, um, discussion back and forth, and marginalization of the first progressive Mormons that come out against certain traditional ideas and advocate for change are often uh, criticized and painted as somehow bad. And I, and I just want to note, like, we're not the only ones who did that. And you can see from that Catholic quote that there are common ideas there. Um, talk for a moment about how this initiation process starts. Where, where do these conversations begin? What wards are these happening in? And what is some of the um, experiences that are starting to make way in the church that these conversations are taking hold? Um, well, we have several accounts of people that pushed, uh, they were considered progressive Mormons, very progressive Mormons at the time that were pushing for change. One of them was Selden Claussen, who was an inventor from Salt Lake City. And uh, he, along with some other members of his ward, um, were pushing, uh, it was the 18th ward in Salt Lake City, were pushing the brethren to make the change and go away from the single cup. This is around uh, the early 1900s, 1906, 19, 1905, something like that. Um, and so Selden Clausen goes and meets with George Q. Cannon, who was considered a little bit more progressive church leader, and he loved the idea. But then he quickly died. And Clausen then thought, well, maybe this is a sign from the other side of the veil that I should drop this idea. And so he kind of just doesn't do anything for like five or 10 years. But a quote from him would give us a, fa a feeling of how it was in the day. This is what he says. A strong conservative group opposed any change to the sacrament because the goblet system was introduced and used by the prophet Joseph Smith and further how would it be possible for any harm to come from the sacrament when it had been blessed by the authorized servants of the Lord? The progressive group said, this is the progressive now, the other side of the argument, said that the wine was used by the Savior and the wine contained alcohol, which was a strong antiseptic and would kill away any contagious germs in the goblet. But when water is used, there is nothing to kill the germs. Therefore, they could pass from one to another. And I think it's interesting that the progressives are using facts and logic to try to... Um, support their case while the conservative members are using, you know, what I consider a weaker argument, which is it's always been this way. Uh, why would we change? 
Yeah, and I want to talk. I want to talk about that idea that that you know why would we change? It's always been done that way. I, I want to note here. It's interesting. You said that quite a bit of time had passed. He talks to Cannon in 1900. It's not. It's 1910. Ten years later, when he starts to bring this conversation back up in a private group of members of his ward uh, in his own home or somebody else's home, but it's outside of church. And as, he, as he's having this conversation about the health benefits of moving away from a single cup, his friends are egging him on. I, and you and I have had these conversations, right? Where we're with a group of friends back when we were going to church and we're like, hey, this is, this is the way this should happen. This is the way this should be done. And, and you'd go, yeah, Bill, you should bring that up. You should, you know, you should push for that or, or do an episode on it or let's talk about that. Um, this is how conversations originate in the church that lead to positive change is that we start to band together, whether it's on the internet or back then, whether it's in the privacy of our homes when we're meeting, you get progressive members together who are bouncing ideas off each other, who are talking about the modern approach to things, who are citing the modern science of the day and are saying there's a better way to do this. And then he goes in in 1910 and goes into his Sunday school um, and begins to raise these questions. And that quote that you just read comes out of that. This process, whether we're talking uh, moving from a goblet to multiple drinking cups, individual drinking cups, or whether we're talking about women having the priesthood or children shouldn't be asked sexual questions in interviews, or we should be honest about our history. Really, this process has been going on from the beginning where the progressives are pushing for the very changes that the church will eventually make but are in the moment getting tons of resistance from the conservative leadership and from the conservative members of their wards and stakes. Um, maybe talk for a moment about the idea of tradition and nothing changes, and yet the honesty that everything has changed. Well, as you were talking, I was remembering that um, it wasn't just the sacrament that progressives were pushing. At the time, there was a huge controversy going on at BYU uh, because progressive science-based professors there were trying to teach that evolution should have a place at the table. Uh, Darwin's book had come out probably 25 years before that. And there was a huge pushback against the conservatives. Several were fired from BYU and had their reputations tarnished. So the conservatives kind of won the day in the progressive BYU argument. Well, I'm just, I'm just wondering, like nothing in the church stays the same. You were talking about having a conversation with, uh, with a person mm -hmm. yesterday. And in your conversation, the person was trying, the person was listening to my early episodes and where I'm trying to differentiate between policy and doctrine. And I'm essentially saying, look, policies are these things that always are changing and adjusting. And doctrines are these things that always stay the same and never move. And then the reality is when you read like William Hardy's um, from, to men and, from Men to Boys or From Boys to Men, um, and then and the development of the, of the uh, priesthood. Charlie and also Charlie Harrell's book. Uh, yeah, this, this is, is my, my doctrine. doctrine. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you take those two, that article and that book into view and you read and listen to those two things, when you wrestle with the ideas therein, the, the realization is you and I could now do, or we, we could ask any member of the church, tell us a doctrine in the church that hasn't changed. And literally nobody could name a doctrine. There's not a single doctrine in the church, right? that hasn't had adjustment, that hasn't changed. And, and so then by that standard, uh, if we're going to make the argument that policies are things that change and doctrines are the things that stay the same, then there's, not doc there's no doctrine in the church. There's no doctrine in the Mormon church, not a single one. Um, everything is policy. 
And the church needs the idea that there's doctrine. The church clings to the idea that there's doctrine. And the reality is not a single, there's not a single doctrine in the church if that's the definition we use. No, yeah, I, I agree. Um, this conversation happens in the Sunday school and there's all this pushback from the, from the conservative side and the progressives are like you said, like you're saying, they're stating the data of the day and they're using logic. Um, this, this escalates. Uh, if, if I remember right, there's a committee now that, that is organized. Um, and there's some prominent people on that committee. Um, talk about that for a moment. Uh, well, if I remember, it's, uh, the coolest person on the committee, at least from my perspective, would have been B.H. Roberts' wife, who was placed on the committee. And she said something really funny for the time. She said, uh, I would rather be on that committee than be the president of the Relief Society. And I, I take that to mean that she would be someone that I would like and that she doesn't like germs either. So she'd rather be on this <laughs> committee where she can actually make some real change yeah, uh, and affect real lives rather than an administrative Relief Society president role. And, and she seems to recognize, right, the nod, nod, wink, wink. I don't get to do shit inside the Relief Society presidency. <laughs> but inside this committee, we're actually, we're actually getting somewhere. And these conversations are vibrant. And people are free to share their opinions. And we are chasing down the data. And we are going to make some kind of substantial, meaningful change in the lives of members. That the, the, again, the juxtaposition of these two organizations and, and the reality of what the Relief Society was in the 1800s, uh, you know, go write some poems, you know, go, go shake some hands. Um, but substantial change you're not going to be allowed to make from inside that organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We see remnants of this still happening, even in the modern era, when you jump to the family proclamation and um, a member of the Relief Society presidency, Chiko Okazaki, uh, makes commentary about how the Relief Society presidency wasn't consulted. It was essentially men deciding these things without any input from the women in the church. And just this recognition from B.H. Roberts' wife here that, that you really don't do a lot. You don't really have a chance to do anything. Your hands are tied when you're in the Relief Society presidency. But you, you have the ability to do something inside this little committee that's going to decide this one little thing and how that committee was much more important for her to be on. Mm-hmm. Um, so this committee happens. B.H. Uh, Roberts' wife is on it. Uh, there's a, miss, a Mrs. Lucian Ray and an Alan Spencer. Um, and then uh, this committee, it moves it up. So this committee has these conversations, and now they're reporting to the Quorum of the Twelve, or specifically the First Presidency. Um, talk maybe about where this goes from here. Well, I believe they take their suggestions to the bishop, who then kicks it up to the stake president, who then kicks it up to the, eventually Joseph F. Smith is their audience. And he was very reluctant to make any change to the Lord's Supper for the same reasons we've already discussed. President Smith, reluctant to make changes. Hmm. When you look at that family, that tells a lot. <laughs> well, he says, he says some interesting things, according to Selden, who um, wrote it down. He said that President Smith said, quote, he didn't want the saints, he didn't think the saints would approve of any change to the sacrament service, and he didn't want the failed attempt to be charged against him as the prophet. So President Smith then says, I have it. I have the idea. I'll turn the matter over to the Council of the Twelve, then they can take the blame if there's any <laughs> failure. <laughs> Which, very interesting peek under the hood of a discussion. Yeah, the, the political nature of going like, hey, this sounds like a great idea, but I just don't think it's going to fly. So if I push this forward, uh, if I recommend this, 
um, that's going to be resisted. And then I'm going to go down in history as the church president who suggested something and they didn't take hold. And, and, and then I'm going to be criticized for that. And then the idea too, the separate idea of kicking it off to the quorum of the 12 and letting them be responsible so that if it fails, then it can't be the presidency of the church. That's at, at you know, any kind of uh, culpability. Yeah. And it's, it's also interesting to point out right here that we're not trying to make a, ch- uh, a global change to the church. Like most changes, they're tested first. Uh, the three-hour block uh, was one that I remember from being a kid that was tested because of, of a enterprising bishop in the Midwest that was like, hey, man, it's a lot of time driving to the driving on Sunday for my people. Um, so they allow the 18th ward, which is where these people are all members of, to test it. But President Smith says, I can pay for it, but I don't want anyone to say of me after I'm dead that I spent hard-earned tithing money on experiments. So he approved the use, or the 12 approved the use of the individual cups that they were trying to get changed, but the ward had to pay for it. The church wasn't going to pay for it. Yeah, it seems interesting. Um, and I know early on, this Murray, this Murray first ward, um, back in 1916, when they made the recommendation about going to the individual sacrament cups, they had already pooled a bunch of money together. It said they had $75.50, which would be equivalent uh, in, uh, in the day this article is written. I'm trying to find a date for the article. But whatever date this article I'm reading from Justin Bray, um, that that was comparable to $1,450 so that that ward could essentially start purchasing its own sacrament supplies. And these conversations had taken hold as early as like the 1890s um, in, in, uh, across the globe. And so there were companies that were producing individual sacrament cup systems. Um, so they had the money to do it. But of course, at that point, it was kind of turned down. Um, this conversation's occurring here in 1911, you're talking about with, with Selden, and they're getting approval to begin doing this. And so it says Selden, with the help of a lot of friends, uh, had his own sacrament set made um, back in 1911. Uh, Chris, tell us about like the development. It says here that Selden, with the help of his friends, had a sacrament set made June 18th, 1911. Um, talk to us a moment about the various people who are creating these items and marketing them and how that worked its way out in terms of getting approval from the First Presidency and the advertising for these things. Uh, when you... When you uh say that, it makes me think of that uh, Ponderize General Conference. Yeah, that didn't go well, did it? (laughs) Where the members are pitched on this new idea and the website launches at the, uh, I don't know. The the exact moment, yeah. Because because you have to create the idea first and it has to look like it came from the church. And then then this idea that him and his son were behind the scenes having everything ready. And you got to be the first ones to hit it because it has to look like it's organic but you can't let someone else two days later create a site. So you got to have yours launch immediately. Yeah. So after the silver tray and glass sacrament cups are being used and there's several people inventing them and pitching them to the church, the big uh, goal though, is to get advertised in the improvement era, the church's official magazine, which used to accept advertising. Right. You want to be the set that everybody sees when they're being told to buy their new sets of cups and trays. You want to be the set that people feel is the Lord's set to buy. Yeah, exactly. So there's another guy in the Enzyme Stake in Salt Lake City. His name is Jacob Schwab, who uh, in 1912 decides to compete with the glass cups by making his own silver cups. Uh, but he put his ad, his name at the bottom of the cup, 
on the outside so that when the participant drank, his ad would show at the bottom of the cup. And it's kind of enterprising. You got to give the guy a little credit for thinking outside the box, you know, trying to get his name out there. But he patented a uh, box that had a uh, solution in it that you could put, I don't know, I think it was 144 cups at a time, dip it into the box so that no one had to touch it to sanitize the cups. Um, and he was able to obtain advertising in the, new, in the improvement era. And I think he even had a first presidency quote or something about this is the one to use, something, something like that. Yeah, yeah. He, he uh, used the first presidency's approval because he presented this particular uh, cup and tray system to them and they gave approval and he marketed his stuff with that quote involved. And, it, and it's interesting, like to be the guy who's got the first presidency's approval, we all know in Mormonism how much having the stamp of approval of leadership gives um, in terms of like a sense of authority or being the right true thing inside the church. The trouble with his system, though, Chris, is, and you kind of noted this, he's got this stacking system that you're dropping all of these cups, they're stacked on top of each other in rows, and you're dropping it down into this really narrow tray that's deep, a deep well. And the solution you was that was in there, you couldn't really get in and clean this thing really well. Um, it, it didn't have the ability for you to get your hand down in there and to get all the areas. It's kind of like trying to clean a really small drinking glass that you can't get your hands in. And so you're trying to get some kind of tool or scrub brush or rag or something into it and you couldn't. And so this thing was like wildfire in the beginning because it's the one that gets advertised. Um, And the silver is an advantage too, right? Like you and I know there's some disinfectant properties of silver that Mm -hmm. silver cups likely did have a little more cleaner hygiene to them than the glass ones. Um, Mm -hmm. But his thing doesn't seem to last forever. Um, are, any, are you aware of any other systems or any other makers or any other information kind of behind um, this part of the history? Well, no, not uh, not with evidence. Um, there were so many ads that Schwab took out, though, that we have really good documentation of at least his invention. He would use words like, um, or sentences like, quote, all progressive wards are buying, end quote, or is your ward up to date? Uh, appealing to the progressive members. I just, I just find it fascinating that um, not only do the progressive members generally initiate the change or suggest the change, but then they're the ones that are pitched the idea. It's, I don't know. I found it interesting. And he put all this stuff, the improvement era, the juvenile instructor, the relief society magazine. Um, These magazines had tons of advertising in them in the beginning, because this was a way that they defrayed, uh, you know, their publishing cost. You know, even as recent as uh, Beneficial Life and the video of Thomas S. Monson as a member of the 12 uh, being their spokesman on a video pushing for this private company, such a conflict of interest, right? And yet the church has really, from, from its inception to, uh, to this very moment, it ties itself in and tangled knots with, pri- with the private sector and private businesses, um, and here's here's a good example of you go to these old magazines, you see advertising left and right for things. Yeah, and it ends up not really working out for Schwab anyway, because well, the whole war, world is thrown into the the Spanish flu epidemic of I believe 1917. So, like most people, he had a business and a lot of expenses, and he I think he ends up going bankrupt. Yeah, he does. Um, Joseph F. Smith is resistant to all of this. He's testing it out in a ward. 
But again, the church is being super resistant, although, again, some wards are buying these. Other manufacturers are beginning to advertise to the Latter-day Saints. Um, but a lot of conservative wards are still resisting the change. Uh, there's a big event that really pushes for the church to take the head on this and to um, essentially give the approval. And it has to do with this Spanish flu pandemic or epidemic in, of 1918. Um, what's the big thing that happens? You know, the, often we are resistant to change until change smacks us in the face. Uh, what's going on during the Spanish flu? Um, well, I think, uh, it's been a while since I've read it, but it seems like the end of World War I brought a lot of military people back to their hometowns. Um, and with their return, they brought this virus with them. And so it hit the world, you know, kind of all at once. And I, I think it's kind of interesting that Joseph F. Smith dies from the flu, but no one can attend his funeral because of well, just like what we're going through right now, restrictions on gathering social distancing. Yeah. He almost assuredly died from the Spanish flu. Yeah. And it was a bad, this was a bad way to die. The Spanish flu would, oh, what's it say? It would cause deep brown spots to appear on the victim's cheeks and thick bodily fluid would begin to overwhelm their lungs. So where they essentially, you drowned in your own fluid in your lungs. Yeah. With COVID-19 happening right now, we hear these stories of people on ventilators and their their lungs are filled up, they're not operating, and they eventually just, like you say, drown or, or choke to death or suffocate to death, not being able to breathe. And um, this would have been the same kind of horrible symptoms that a lot of the folks who died from the Spanish flu, uh, those are the kinds of symptoms they would have experienced, minus no real, you know, no no extreme number of ventilators or, or the modern medicines to help these folks. Yeah. Um, and so, so Joseph F. Smith dies from this. They can't go to the funeral, as you point out. This, this has got to be a huge prompt. Um, I don't want to say prompting because that leads to, to us talking about spiritual things, but a secular prompt that they're behind the times and things have got to start moving, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, I think there's a delay in bringing Heber J. Grant in as the prophet because there was a ban on public gatherings. I think there's several months that go by without, uh, you know, an official recognition that he's the new president of the church. Yeah. In fact, November 19th, 1918, President Joseph F. Smith dies of pneumonia, a lung inflammation caused by the influenza virus. Um, and then it says that, again, as you pointed out, nobody was allowed to attend the funeral. Um, no public funeral was held. And Heber J. Grant was not sustained until June 1919 um, because the flu, the influenza epidemic had delayed the church's semi-annual general conference uh, in April. Mm -hmm. And so there is this delay. And so this tends to kind of be a wake-up call to the church that they, they've held old ground, and that old ground isn't fertile, and they need to start making the move. Uh, what happens from there? Uh, they make the move fairly quickly at that point. I believe in 1921, Heber J. Grant's, uh, well, first presidency letter states that uh, it's recommended that the wards all move to individual cups, but it's not required. And so there's a lag again, kind of like, you know, in the, there's a change in the garments or any other change. It takes several years before everybody's on board. And the church seems to always play this tiptoe game, don't they? They always seem to play this little game of like, oh, you know, when it came to the word of wisdom, let's leave the older members alone, but let's expect the newer members to do it and the younger members to do it. Um, when it comes to the temple garment, we'll keep making the one piece. And if people want to wear that, they can. And um, the church through its pilot programs and its surveys 
often tends to slowly move some of these changes out and to just kind of feel out um, whether it's going to be acceptable or not, whether it's going to take hold or not. And, and for the listener, that certainly is a different way to see how the church makes moves versus God talks to the prophet. Hence, the prophet knows that the change is going to be the right thing. Hence, there's no need to do a pilot program, no need to do a survey, no need to test something out in a ward or a stake somewhere. Let's just jump into it because we know it's going to work because the Lord said so. Um, this seems to be kind of a procedural way the church makes changes is to test stuff out. And often, even when we see big changes, we often then start to hear rumblings that this was tested somewhere first. Um, seems interesting. Um, you talked about um, 1921, just to give a little bit of information before you take back over and, and tell us a little more about the story. Uh, in the 1919 General Conference, Heber J. Grant revealed that over 1,000 members had died from influenza in just nine months. But later statistics showed that over 2,600 Utahns alone died from the disease between 1918 and 1919. That's significant. Um, Grant's father, Jedediah M. Grant, as well as Joseph F. Smith, had both died from respiratory um, diseases. And so he's very much aware inside his head of the pain and loss that is coming from not being more careful. Um, Your thoughts? No, um, uh, I completely agree. Heber J. Grant is kind of seen as there's a there's a transition between Joseph F. Smith and Heber J. Grant. Joseph F. Smith was, you know, he remembered seeing his father murdered uh, in Carthage. He remembers seeing his body in the mansion house as a, I believe, a five year old. So there's a a shifting of gears between the Joseph F. Smith presidency and the Heber J. Grant presidency, and one of them is that Heber J. Grant was much more willing to make changes that the church had been reluctant to make up until then. And the sacrament being one of the very first. This, this kind of becomes this wake up call. You've got Grant uh, serving on the board of directors and as vice president of the Utah public health association. So he's, this is between 1916 and 1924. So there's, you know, there's some data that points to him kind of being progressive as you're pointing out, he's a much different, he has a much different ground he's holding than Joseph F. Smith. Um, and there were some, and there were some bad things about it too. For example, Joseph F. Smith had taken a softer approach to um, polygamy, or at least you know the plural marriage families that uh, we had stopped practicing plural marriage. But he wasn't; it wasn't in his mind to you know essentially hunt down people still practicing or engaged in the principle and excommunicate them. Heber J. Grant took a very hard line against that, and you know went and sought him out. Interesting. Um, you know, we talked about these ads showing up in the Improvement Era, Juvenile Structure, Relief Society Magazine. Uh, it looks like kind of the last uh, thing that kind of happens here is 1923. Uh, the Improvement Era, Era and the Juvenile Instructor, the church's primary publication arms and chief organs for spreading information to the saints, began printing definitive instructions regarding the sacrament. For example, after a number of wards wrote to headquarters in Salt Lake City regarding the administration of the sacrament in 1923, a 13-step process for preparing, blessing, and distributing, and cleaning up the emblems was printed in the priesthood section, session, sorry, the priesthood section of the August Improvement Era. These instructions stress that the sacramental water must be distributed in individual glasses and carried in trays. Ideally, someone was also to pass empty trays to gather the glasses so as to save time. The article even directed priesthood holders to properly sterilize individual cups after each sacrament meeting. 
There was no mention of a common cup in these procedures or any other ensuing church publication. So here we see in this final move in 1923, the, the death of the goblet, um, the chalice, or the, the communal cup uh, being used in Mormonism. Um, talk for a moment. I think we need to hit on it here. All the changes that the sacrament has in, uh, incurred. Because we like to say, again, doctrine, policies, doctrines don't change. And one of our doctrines is the sacrament. Um, talk for a moment about all the changes that have ensued over time that you're aware of. Well, going back into the 1900s, we've <clears throat> hit on some of them already. The sacrament consisted of wine and bread that people would eat, the members would eat until they were full. Women, uh, it's, uh, women participated in the preparing of the sacrament in that they were in charge of the linens and the, you know, the cleaning of the, of the uh, cup and the trays that were used. Um, then the uh, changes in the 1890s where the members of the congregation stopped kneeling during the prayer and of course the going to the multiple cups. And then it gets, a, it gets really interesting after this because then you see the formalization of the sacrament, like you say in 1923, and then wards begin to do what you know, humans begin to do what humans do and impose more formalities, more restrictions. There were wards that, were in, that made the deacons wear uh, black ties and white shirts, and they had to walk in like a march formation and keep their left arm uh, crooked up in the middle of their back. Uh, some wards made the deacons uh, stand with their arms folded at the end of each aisle. Um, and there began to be competition between who could put on the, I guess, coolest show. Yeah, I know, it, you know, if we follow DNC, I think it's section 20, the, the elders were in charge of blessing the sacrament. We've moved to allowing uh, Aaronic priesthood uh, priests to do that. It talks about the elders both blessing and passing. We've allowed the deacons and the uh, teachers to participate in parts of that ordinance as well. Um, you know, you're talking about this, these rote concepts being added to the ritual that weren't necessarily church led, at least not originally. And yet now we see the formalization of, you know, one of the things you wanted to talk about was the use of the right hand. Um, the other thing that certainly needs pointed out is this adoption of white shirts as a sign of cleanliness and priesthood. Um, talk for a moment about the right hand and some of the leaders in the church and some of their, their feelings about that. And, and maybe we can even talk a little bit about where that comes from this, again, tradition of the Old Testament and moving into the New Testament where essentially we marginalize left-handed people. Okay. So the first time we uh, see the right hand being addressed is in the 1930s where the practice of the deacons carrying the tray with the right hand and the members supposed to take the sacrament with the right hand, we have, we have a record of. Um, according to the instructions given to the deacons, they were to take the tray by the right hand only and keep the left hand behind their backs at all times. This was going on in the granite stake. And the only explanation given was, quote, it is not proper to have a boy handling the sacrament with the left hand, unquote. Uh, Joseph Fielding Smith, though, who's the church historian, has no Wait, problem. You mean the guy, who, the guy who hides a lot of documents in his vault? <laughs> well, <guy>. uh, <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> we don't know his motive, but the stuff was in there. All right. Okay, that guy. So he, uh, he comes in 1946 and makes a statement that having these boys with the left hand plastered on their backs in a most awkward manner 
um, was bothering him. He was worried about formalism taking over our rituals, which seems ironic considering who's, you know, who he is. Yeah. Yeah. The most formal of them all. <laughs> and then, uh, almost a decade later, he is insisting that the, ta- the sacrament be taken by the right hand only. Uh, and he, the quote is the right hand is a symbol of righteousness. The right hand or side is called the dexter and the left, the sinister. Dexter connotes something favorable, sinister, something unfavorable. It is a well-established practice in this church to partake of the sacrament with the right hand and also to anoint with the right hand according to the custom which the scriptures indicate is and always was approved by divine injunction. Yeah, and it seems this right hand thing goes to the Old Testament, this idea that majority of humans were right-handed, a small segment were left-handed, and as we humans always do in tribalism, we take the minority segments, the fringe segments, and we call them somehow less than, and the, 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 the majority ends up being the accepted and the honorable and the good. Um, and so you have a lot of language in the Old Testament that makes everything right hand being clean, left hand being dirty, and we essentially force the left-handers to operate counter to their actual handedness. Um, and, and so there's this concept that um, this language of the left hand being bad is really kind of this silly tradition that's very similar to the idea of like mixing fabrics uh, that the Old Testament has or staying away from certain foods as clean or unclean. Um, It really is an old way of thinking. And there really is no, it's kind of hard to believe there's a bearded man in the sky who really cares about whether left-handed people compromise their handedness and do things the way the rest of us do it. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, with the right hand and the uniforms that wards were requiring that the deacons use, um, there began to be uh, wards that with had, that had more means were trying to elevate the sacrament to a to almost a uh, what would the word be almost a, a performance. Um, certainly, they weren't trying to take away from the sacredness of the ritual, but in trying to elevate it, I think they things kind of got out of hand. Yeah, and so there's this story about a, the Hollywood stake in southern in Southern California. Um, the let's see here, the author of the article. Let me skip up here. Robert Simpson. We thank thee, O God, for a prophet. BYU speeches, June twenty fourth, nineteen eighty six. Um, it says, in what was then called the Hollywood stake in Southern California, I was performing my duties as a young deacon, assisting with the sacrament service each weekend. Our new chapel had just been dedicated. It was beautiful. We were so proud. We even had a separate sacrament alcove behind the bishopric seats on the stand. Bit by bit, we tried to enhance our sacrament service. Uh, Red velour drapes were installed to be drawn apart at the precise psychological moment. Smaller drapes revealing a picture of the Last Supper were drawn just before the sacrament prayers were given. All of the deacons wore white shirts and black bow ties. And last but not least, we had worked out a system of musical chimes to signal the opening of the drapes and the sacrament prayers. It was the most beautiful and dramatic sacrament presentation ever devised in any dispensation. Even the stake president was impressed, so much so that he invited President Heber J. Grant to come down and see the church's new Hollywood version of the sacrament. President Grant accepted the invitation and witnessed what turned out to be our final presentation. We were taught in unmistakable but kindly terms that the sacrament, what the sacrament service should be, 
I'll never forget that lesson. It was valuable not only to me, but to everyone else in, the, in that ward and in that stake. You can just feel this, right? The stake president sees this and he's excited, like he's proud. It's his stake that created this thing. And, uh, and in Mormonism, you know, we're, we're always trying to go like, look, look, look at us honoring Christ even better. Um, and then here comes a church leader to put him in his place and say, uh, we don't do that. Uh, so he thought he was going to get, you know, get uh, some kind of recognition that was positive, And instead he stopped in his tracks. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, Any other thoughts here before we wrap up? It seems like we've hit all the high points of of the data here. Uh, Is there anything that we're missing? Something else that we need to go into? What are your thoughts kind of closing up the episode? No, I think, uh, I think it's important to note that these advertisements for sacrament trays and such, and the debate continued on into the 1950s until the church provided uniform trays to all wards and branches across the, the globe. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I, would, I would make note kind of as we wrap up, just this idea that if we, if we t- step back from the trees and look at the forest, uh, there's a realization that progressives are always causing change in the church and progressive ideas in and outside of the church are moving the church to let go of its traditional ground um, even though it resists, even though it's always scratching and clawing as it's being dragged to this change, the church does seem to always come around to these things. And we see this recently. Um, females, women in the church have been being, uh, have had their voice uh, on numerous occasions in private circles and in public uh, social media asking for the church to reduce its sexism. And only recent do we see significant changes made to the temple to reduce that. Sam Young, um, who, you know, would have, you know, if his, if his conversation was in 19, um, you know, 10 about sacrament cups, rather than children being interviewed behind closed doors, uh, he might've been able to be part of that change, right? And stay in. Meanwhile, here in 2020, he's suggesting that a grown man with no training shouldn't be asking kids sexual questions behind closed doors. The church excommunicates him and then follows up by making a change, which is giving permission for two adults to be in the room. Not exactly the change Sam wanted, but certainly better than what we were. Uh, Kate Kelly gets excommunicated for pushing for women to have the priesthood and she's excommunicated immediately following the church makes more space for women to have a more visible and more influential role within church councils. Um, you see the church, uh, there was a moment in a conference where all of us were collectively begging for people of color to be called into the Quorum of the Twelve. It didn't happen that conference. The very next conference, Elder Gong and Elder Suarez uh, are called into the Quorum of the Twelve. And so you see the church respond in every social issue by saying, nope, we're not doing that. We're not changing. And then in the end, the progressives eventually win, even though we lose a few along the way. Um, they have to be the scapegoat for the pressure being put on the church. Uh, but change eventually happens. And it really is the progressives that move the church and it's always changing. And it's the conservatives, including the leadership that seem to always be trying to stop those changes, eventually slow those changes down and eventually give in to those. That seems to be what Mormonism and to some extent, what humanity is. No, it's really well said. Um, it's, it's sad in a way, but I guess predictable in a way, right? Yeah. What are we if not creatures of habit? What are we if not creatures that say this is the way we've always done it? How many times has, you know, you've done something um, and then you say like, like, oh, someone goes, why do you do that? And you go, I don't know. My mom told me that's how we do it. That's just the way we do things. 
um, so often raising my kids or doing things in church or doing things at a job. We just do things the way we think things are supposed to be because someone showed us that way. And until someone shows us a different way and we see our confirmation bias gets out of the way and we see the value in the new way of doing things, we're often resistant to that change. And, you know, on this issue and every other issue within Mormonism, prophets seem to be more of a barrier and a dam to a healthy change rather than being literal recipients of the words of God and being the first or at the forefront of that change. Yeah, that's actually very personal to me because as a member, I wanted to know why we did everything. I wanted to know the origin of the temple ceremony. I wanted to know how we developed garments. I wanted to know why we had 36 cups in the sacrament tray. I wanted to know why we met for the length of time. We, I, I just was fascinated with why we had, how we had come up with the way that we practice. Um, but eventually it, uh, eventually ran into a bishop who said, I'm just, our, our family is just wolves in, in sheep's clothing by even uh, knowing the history of how we became uh, who we are. Um, so I, in some regards, I feel like one of those progressive Mormons that's been, you know, that didn't uh, maybe a little, maybe I'm 10 years too early on some of this stuff. Yeah, that's just it. If you are uh, Dr. Lowry Nelson and you're just a little early, you get told, watch what you say, be careful. And on the other side of the change, you're just the most reasonable, rational Mormon. And it's the other guy who's, you know, who's holding on to old theories, who's the crazy guy. Um, and time seems to always be on the side of the progressive Latter-day Saint, even if it ends up being punishment in the moment, which is, as you're pointing out, you've incurred for just talking about the history in accurate, compassionate ways. Um, it's gotten you and your family marginalized. So it's interesting in, you know, you and I researching this topic of kind of realizing this topic is symbolic and kind of representative of progressive Mormonism collectively and, and where uh, data and science and truth seem to always be on the progressive side. And it seems to always be this leadership collectively and these conservative members who marginalize those uh, at the front end of this, who have the truth and who have better ideas and better ways of doing things, uh, marginalize them with shame and peer pressure and sometimes church discipline. Um, it's, it's unfortunate, but uh, that's what made this topic kind of fun was it was progressive Mormonism in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and kind of fun to see ourselves in these people. Yeah. yeah you and I talk about what's the church going to look like in a generation or two. And um I think we will see the church move on all these issues. I know it's controversial to say that LGBT people will be able to be married in the temple, but you and I have come to this conclusion many times as we've debated it. Is how can it not? It's how inevitable. You... Yeah. yeah. It's inevitable. But right now it seems like a hill that the church is willing to die on. Yeah. But they were also willing to die on the hill of individual or one common sacrament cup. They were willing to die on the hill of temple ordinances be the same. They were willing to die on the hill of black people being cursed. They were willing to die on the hill of, uh, um, uh, you know, name it, any single thing, women having zero say or role in the church, every single hill they've been willing to die on only to 20, 30, 40 years later, uh, finally say that God was talking to them way after he talked to everybody else and uh, telling them that they should be doing what everybody else has been pushing them to do anyway. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't LGBT people be included in the plan of salvation uh, within a few de more decades? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's inevitable. Uh, appreciate the time, Chris. Uh, I love anytime you and I get together and have a conversation. Uh, one of these days, I want to. I want people. I want to just have, sit down with you and just have you tell your life stories. Um, there's some fun stories in your life that I'm aware of that I think would would be really fun and enjoyable to the to the audience. So maybe sometime here soon, let's you and I sit down and kind of just talk about your experience in the church. I think you're a you're an interesting person because you've been deeply involved in Mormon history and a collector of Mormon artifacts and memorabilia of some sort or uh, historical items for a long time. Um, and it's made my job interesting as I've had a chance to interact with you and with um, this history and your knowledge of it since you, me and I have been out here together. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks for the, thanks for the compliment, Bill. That's nice yeah, of you. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> anything else before we close? No, no. I look forward to seeing you later today. Perfect. Uh, that'll be fun. See you then. See ya. And have fun, everybody. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And as always, if you can help out, donate a few bucks. Uh, Mormon Discussion Podcast continues on on the uh, donations and uh, contributions of those who listen. So thank you so much. And we'll just see you next time. Uh, roll the music. Taking out my issues never healed the